Amen. That is the word of the Lord. Good morning, guys. If you don't know who I am, I'm Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so excited to be sharing from God's word with you this morning. Arby Zajonk was a born American psychologist, and he did a lot of work on a wide range of social and cognitive processes. His most well-known contribution, though, to social psychology is called the mere exposure effect. And it's the idea that just being exposed to something increases your positive connection. So he studied, like, how much exposure is necessary before you become familiar enough to connect with something, to be positively associated with it. And it turns out that it's pretty quick. You don't even have to be consciously aware of your exposure to something for it to be positively associated in your mind. And sometimes it's called the familiarity principle. Uh, and, and because familiarity is the connection with the perception and everything. So that's why companies will pay millions and billions of dollars to pay for advertisement during a Super Bowl is because next time you're going to the store, they want you to buy their product. Absolutely, that makes sense, right? Um, it, unlike Coke versus Pepsi, where Coke is far and above better than Pepsi. <laughs> Boo, there it is. Um, but it's also why we keep returning to the same products over and over. We have a positive association with them because we're familiar with them. When we're used to something, when we have a, a history with something, we're more likely to have positive associations unless something bad happened, like food poisoning at Taco Bell or something. Um, and that's also why we have positive associations with things from our childhood. We, we connect with them. We've been there. We keep going to the same place over and over and over again. That nostalgia and familiarity builds that positive association. And that's why when you take your kids somewhere that you loved and they hate it, it may not have been as good as you originally remembered. <laughs> or they may have a lot of other things going on. Anyways, so why do I bring this up? Well, well look at your own life. How, how many of us, you don't have to raise your hands, how many of us go to the same places over and over and over and over? We got the same restaurants, we order the same thing, even when we go to different restaurants. The reason is, is because familiarity is, is positive in our minds, right? Like, I know I like a cheeseburger. I may not like this other thing, and so I keep going with cheeseburgers, and it shows. But, but there, <laughs> see, too many bad jokes, I'm sorry. But the problem happens when we choose what's familiar over what's best. When we choose what's familiar over what's best. We don't need a psychologist to tell us that we're, we're creatures of habit. It, it's fine if I keep doing the same thing every week, every single day of every week, so long as the thing I'm doing every single day of every week is the best thing I do. But when we choose less than because it's familiar over what's best, that's when the problem creeps in. Because if we're honest, all of us have habits that we return to over and over again that aren't best for us, but they're comfortable. They're safe. We know what they give us. And so familiarity isn't just a safeguard against the unknown and insecurity. It can become the enemy of the new thing that we need to be a part of. The new thing that God is doing that calls us beyond ourselves. And this is ultimately what we want anyways, if we're honest. We want what's best. No one wants to, to be on their deathbed thinking, oh, I wish I would have done this. No one, no one wants to settle for a life of second best because it was familiar. We all, if we're honest, we want what's best for us. We want to have the best life possible. And so we spend years and years in school and therapy and all other places looking to find that best for us, trying to figure out what we were created for, what we're made for, what we're made to do. Because we all want to be who we're supposed to be. 
But if we're ever to figure that out, friends, we must begin to understand familiar can be the enemy of the new. Familiar can be the enemy of the best. And this theological idea is connected to the fact that Jesus, through his life and death and resurrection, that he has begun a new creation in the middle of the old one. That because of, what he's, because of his rising from the dead, that there's this new thing breaking out into the world through his Holy Spirit called the church, and that we are a people of the new creation in the midst of the old. But still the sin and brokenness in our patterns and familiar world, they cause us to drift away from what's new to what's familiar. This is a temptation for all of us, but this temptation isn't new. In fact, it's a problem that the church in Colossae faced. The letter to the Colossians was written to respond to false teaching that they were experiencing. They were facing it, and this, this letter is to encourage them to stick with what's new. Stick with the new creation. Don't go back to the old thing that doesn't work anymore. But first off, it's helpful to understand the context, because Paul is writing this letter to, Coloss to Colossae, but the difference is that this is a church he's never visited. Almost all the letters in the New Testament are churches he's either visited or he started. But this church, he's never even been there. But you see, when Paul was in Ephesus for three years, sharing the good news, sharing the good news of the gospel, of what Jesus has done, that Jesus has died for our sins, that Jesus has risen from the grave and he offers new life, he preached that for three years in Ephesus. And out of that comes two important people who start the church in Colossae. The first one is Epaphras. Epaphras was the one who planted the church in Colossae. He, he heard the good news of what Jesus has done. He heard the news about the new thing that God was doing in the midst of the old. And, and so he starts this church. He starts telling everybody he knows that God has done this new thing through Jesus. And because of that, a church sprouts up. But as any good pastor would do, he has some problems and he goes to someone to help him. He wants to know how to better minister to his people and to keep them on track. And so Epaphras goes to Paul, wherever Paul is. Paul may be in Rome at this point. He may be in Ephesus. The scholars can't agree, so I'm not going to try. Um, but anyways, he, he goes to Paul to figure out, hey, what do I do? This is what's going on in my church. How do I respond? And the other person that, that comes from uh, that, that gospel preaching in Ephesus is Philemon. And Philemon's an interesting character. Philemon was a very well-off business person. We don't know much else besides that, but we know that he's pretty rich and that the church in Colossae probably met in his house. And so he's the sponsor of the church. When the church gathers, they gather in his house. But, but one of the things that happened to Philemon is one of his servants had run away. And we don't know whether it was before Philemon became a Christian or after. And, and there's a lot of conversation over whether or not he treated him like a slave or a servant. There's, that's for another time. But, but the good news is that when Paul sends this letter to the Colossians, he also sends another letter. But better than the letter he sends is he sends Onesimus. Onesimus was a servant of Philemon that had run away. But he left a servant and came back a brother. And so Paul is saying to, this, to, to Philemon that Nesimus is coming back and he's your brother now. Don't treat him like you did before. Whatever, again, we don't know all the details of that, but we do know this, is that all these things are going on. And you're like, Jeff, that's a lot of backstory. What's going on? I bring this all back to you to, to, to say that this is an occasional letter. Paul's not just writing theology for us. Paul's not just writing something because he has this desire to talk uh, this sermon. No, he's, he's speaking to people specifically in the midst of their problems. This isn't a theology book. This is a, pastoral's heart, a pastor's heart. They were written to a part, this letter was written to a particular people with particular problems needing specific solutions. And this matters to us today because we don't want to abstract the text from the context. 
A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text, as it's been said. So essentially, we want to get the context so we understand what's going on, not so we can make our points. Does this make sense? Hopefully it makes sense. If not, come find me. So Paul writes this beautiful, short, and theological, it is theological, this beautiful and short letter to the Colossians. And all of it is directed at specific things that they needed to hear. And I believe that we need to hear as well today in our context. But there are a couple of problems I want to point out to you before we get to how it applies to us. And in Colossians, or in Colossians, we see three problems sprouting up, and they should be on the screen for you. Mysticism, syncretism, and legalism. If you don't know what those words are, I'll, I'll explain it. But it's mysticism, syncretism, and legalism. This is the Colossian heresy, as it's sometimes called. The first is mysticism. Mysticism was the idea that there are spiritual forces at work in the world. And this isn't a foreign concept to most of the world before, before naturalism. But this particular version of mysticism believed that there were angels everywhere. Okay, it's not wrong. And that they were to be worshipped alongside Jesus. Very wrong. And so they essentially brought in some of their understanding of spirituality before following Jesus into their faith in Jesus. And the familiarity is coming back. That's why I brought that up, that illustration, is that they were familiar with this way of worship. They were familiar with worshiping these other deities. And so Paul is writing to them, saying, hey, don't go back into that. And the problem was that some people in the church were saying, yeah, okay, you got Jesus, that's cool, but you need more. You need to go beyond Jesus. Yeah, Jesus saved you, that's cool. But you need to go beyond Jesus into this special knowledge, this spiritual experiences, this idea that there's a deeper knowledge to this beyond Jesus. Now, we have spiritual experiences of the Holy Spirit, but this is different. That this is talking about these spiritual experiences that come from worshiping angels. And so their, their desire was to go beyond Christ into human traditions, which is why Paul says in Colossians 2, 4, and 8, he says this, I am telling you this so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. If I were to sum up the whole letter of Colossians, I would say is this, Christ is sufficient and Christ is supreme. If you want the whole letter, Christ is sufficient and supreme. So rather than going off into the Jesus, Paul is saying, no, Jesus is enough. Don't go off to these human traditions. Don't go off to these well-crafted philosophies and arguments. Don't go beyond Jesus. Go further into Jesus. Which is why, as we'll see later on the passage today, Paul uses strategic language. All the words he picks out are specific and important to help them understand. And we'll see that later on. But um, continuing on, the, the, the problem is that their underlying spirituality pushed people away from Jesus and what he had done for them to what they could, how they could know more in this spiritual sense and spiritual with the air quotes. But the second problem they are facing is syncretism. And what does that mean? Well, syncretism is the idea of worshiping Jesus and other gods. And this was very popular. This was a problem in the Old Testament. Again and again, you see God is judging Israel because they want to worship Yahweh. They want to worship the one true God, but they also kind of want to worship some other gods on the side. It's, it's kind of like the dating scene today. You got the main person, and then you date the other people on the side. No. So anyways, I'm married. I don't do that. That's, that was not, I was not encouraging that. Anyways, that's why you read your notes, Jeff. Um, but in, in Colossae, they've got these different pantheons of gods. They've got the Greek gods, they've got the Phrygian gods, they've got all kinds of gods, and they've got a god for everything. They've got a god for the harvest. They've got a god for, for fertility. They've got a god for rain. They've got a, they've got a god for peace and a god for war. They've got all kinds of gods. 
And, and so when they come to follow Jesus, they're like, but, but what happens if I don't pray to the rain God? Do I get no rain? What, what, do, do, what if I don't pray to the God of peace? Does that mean someone will come and attack us? What if I don't pray to the... the they, they were trying to wrestle through how do I make sense of this faith in Jesus because Jesus says he's the one true God. How do I make sense of all these other claims? Because for decades and decades and centuries, their families worshiped this pantheon, and now they have to make this decision, are they going to worship Jesus alone, or are they going to worship these other gods? And, and so, and not only from the inside, but the outside pressure as well, because the society that they were living in would blame the people who didn't pray hard enough. They say, oh, this famine came? It's because you didn't pray to the right gods. It's because you Christians stopped worshiping the right gods. And so they've got internal pressure from their past, and they've got external pressure from their society to, to, to try and work through all this. And so this, this temptation towards syncretism was, was really strong. Because, and if we're honest, all of us feel temptation away from the new way to the old way because of that familiarity. We know that Jesus offers new life and freedom, but freedom feels scary when you're used to chains. One of the biggest temptations for any of us is that we, when life gets hard, to go what, to what is familiar rather than going to what Jesus says is true. And this was just as true for those converted from the non-Jewish faith as for those who converted from Judaism, which leads us to our final problem, which is legalism. That the legalism is the idea that those who are Gentiles, those who are non-Jews, after following Jesus, now they've got to follow the law. And, and so they're like, yeah, great. We're, we're so glad you're following this very Jewish Messiah. That's great. But now you've got to start doing all the things we say you should do. You, you need to keep all the, the rituals. You, you need to follow the calendar. You need to do all the festivals. You, you need to do all the eating rituals. You need to do all the cleaning. They just said, hey, it's great you're following Jesus, but now you've got to become a Jew too. And so Paul points this out most clearly in chapter 2 when he talks about asceticism or the idea of disciplining your body. And, and, and Paul is saying that this idea of legalism has crept in because you, you've forgotten that Jesus is enough. Again, the, the sufficiency of Christ is so important so that we don't fall off into these temptations. But this isn't just true in the, in the old world, right? It's not just true in the, in the ancient world. It's also true in the modern world. Because if you ask, any, you go out the doors and you ask anyone, how do I know I'm right with God? How, how would you say? They would say, oh, just be a good person. They would say, oh yeah, just be a good person. Isn't that enough? That's always been a temptation to, to think that, that the way to be right with God is to do the right things. And so legalism is just alive today as it was then. And we're all constantly bombarded with lies about how we can exist in the world after following Jesus. But Paul wants to point them and us to this reality, that we are new creation people in the midst of the old. So don't go back to the old. Don't forget what Jesus has done for you, that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he died, that he rose from the grave, that he offers freedom in the new creation he is making you. So whether it's mysticism, syncretism, or legalism, all these distractions are trying to call us away from God, but, but God wants us to call closer to him. And, and so again, these familiar things were pulling them away. But, but our, our society is not that far from Colossae. Even though we don't have Jewish legalism and worship of angels, they're not popular here, we see people emphasizing a spirituality rooted outside of Christ and a legalistic impulse inside of the church. And, and the syncretism or mixing Jesus with other things is very alive as well. There are people who say all the time they're spiritual and not religious. Although that's not inherently wrong, it usually refers to those who want to be spiritual. They want all the good things that Jesus offers. They want the way of the kingdom, but they don't want the king. 
that they want, they want all the good things that can come from a spiritual life, but they don't want to obey Jesus. And, and so some people go along the lines, they, they borrow from the Christian worldview all kinds of principles of, of loving your neighbor, of being kind, of being patient, of being all these good things, but they don't want to obey Jesus outside of those things, the things that they've decided are good. And so for some others, it's, it's their zodiac sign and using crystals. For others, it's a form of pantheism, that God is all around us and in us, but God is more a force than the person. And despite the fact that I disagree with their conclusions, I'm glad that at least the spiritual conversation is coming up. In the 20th century, naturalism lied to us and said, You're, we're just material beings. We only exist in our physical bodies. There's nothing more. But at least the people who are in this are, are aware that we are spiritual people who are made to worship something. So even in the midst of it, there's the opportunity for the good news. But still, inside the church, we see people who want to add rules on top of the Christian faith. You don't have to go to church for very long to find out what the rules of that church are, right? For some people, it's what you can bring or what you can wear. It's what you can do and not do. This, this kind of holier-than-thou perspective, this legalism that, that calls people not to be righteous, but calls people to love being right, that calls people not to holiness, but calls people to be holier-than-thou. That this comparison religion rather than the faith that Jesus offers. Yes, Jesus wants to make us righteous. Yes, Jesus wants to make us holy. But not in comparison to others, but in connection to him. Je Jesus isn't calling us to comparison to others, but to connection with him. That by his spirit, we would live the kind of life that he's calling us to live. And again, in both these issues, we, we see 2,000 year, years removed from the ancient city of Colossae that we are living in the midst of its spiritual heritage, that we too face the same problems. And so Paul says to us something significant as well. And this is a summary of Paul's response. Get Jesus right and you'll be able to sort out what's wrong. Get Jesus right. If you understand Jesus correctly, you'll be able to sort out what is wrong. And we do this by the power of his Holy Spirit, and we're changed by the work of Jesus through the Spirit in response to the good news. It's a lot of things going on here. But essentially this is that Jesus is sufficient, and he's supreme, so submit to his Spirit's leading, and you will become the new creation you're called to be. And so Paul has two prayers for us this morning in response to that reality, that as we submit to the Spirit, as we live into that new creation life that God is calling us to, that there are two prayers that he has for this people and for us. It's this. The first prayer is thanks for the new that has begun, and the second is a petition for the new that is still to come. So there's two prayers. Thanks for the new that has begun, and petition for the new that is still to come. Let's break down that first prayer, that, that thanking God for the new that has begun in verses three through eight. It should be on the screen. We always pray for you, and we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people, which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You've had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth and the good news, of the good news. The same good news that came to you is going out all over the world and is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. You learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker. He is Christ's faithful servant, and he is helping us on your behalf. He has told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. And so Paul wants to start off by thanking God and emphasizing the new creation reality that has already begun. There's a lot of things that Paul's got to say in correction, but before he goes to correction, he wants to go to praise. 
He, he calls them the holy people of God in, in verse 2. He, he, he's recognizing that they are holy people made holy by what God has done. He acknowledges this important reality that it is God and not we ourselves through, through the power of the, of the good news and the power of his spirit that has worked in them and us. That it is God at work in us and not we ourselves that makes us more the new creation. And even though uh, some were tempted to stick with what was familiar in the old way, Paul is praising God for the new way that's already begun. And just look at some of the things that Paul mentions as being found in their faith in the ESV translation of verse 6. It says this, The good news which has come to you, as indeed the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. It's very interesting. These very specific things that Paul is mentioning. Well, look at Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them, and he said, God said to them, be fruitful, bear fruit, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The New Testament scholar G.K. Beale says that Paul is borrowing creation language to point to the new creation in Christ in this church. So he's saying the whole world, bearing fruit, increasing, borrowing words from the Old Testament, borrowing a picture of God's mandate for the people in creation. So before the fall, before we're, sin we're sinners, before we were even capable of doing wrong, we were given a mandate, we were given a mission, we were given a purpose in this world, and it was to bear fruit and to multiply and fill the earth. And Paul is saying, guys, listen up. The thing that God commanded you to do through Jesus is coming true. That this new creation reality is breaking out in the middle of the old. And he's borrowing this, this language from creation. He's pointing them to this reality that the new creation isn't just a coming reality. It's a current reality as well. And this is amazing. That, that according to Paul, that what we were created to do, who we were created to be, has come to be a reality through what Jesus is doing. That we can become the new thing that Jesus is making us. That we can actually become what we were made to be. That through the fall, though, though the fall has, has caused brokenness and sin in this world, it has not marred us to the point that we aren't able to be who we're meant to be. Jesus isn't just the agent of creation, as we'll see in the Christ hymn next week, but he's also the agent of new creation. Not only were all things made through him and for him and in him, but all things will be made new through his death, burial, and resurrection. And this is such a key part to understanding the book of Colossians. The new creation has started right now. It's not some future reality alone. It is a future reality. We haven't fully experienced it. But it started right now through Jesus, through his Holy Spirit in his church. For the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in us. And so he praises God for their confident hope, for the fruit from changed lives, understanding of God's wonderful grace and the love they have for others. This is a place where God's Spirit is powerfully at work bringing the reality of the new creation to be already. And Paul wants to make sure that before he brings the necessary corrections, that he points out all the good that God is doing. Because if you're like me, you can have a tendency towards pessimism, right? We need to be reminded that the presence of problems is not the absence of God's power. We need to be reminded that the presence of problems, the presence of problems in a church is not the absence of God's power. It's the reality of living between two ages, that we live in the midst of a new creation already, but not yet, that we live in a world that still has brokenness. And so in this in-between, in this juxtaposition between heaven and earth that we call the church, there's going to be problems. 
but that is not the absence of God's power. In fact, it is usually our perspective being out of line with God's that causes us to only see the problems and not to see his power. It's usually our perspective being out of line with God's that causes us to only see the problems and not see his power. And it makes sense, again, that we're, we live between two ages. And so there's going to be some wrestling between the current and the one to come. But Paul starts with thanking God for all the good that exists in this church. Is that your natural reaction? Do you try and see what God is doing in a situation, or do you just go to what's going wrong? Maybe this morning, that's the question that we need to be asking ourselves. Instead of being doom and gloom, we need a posture of asking God, what are you doing? Where are you moving? Where are you working? And God, help us to be more aware of it. The first prayer is thanking God for all the new that has begun. And the second is the petition for all the new that is still to come, the request for all the new that is still to come. In verses 9 through 14, it says this. So we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. We also pray that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power, so you will have all the endurance and patience you need. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Amen. So the first prayer is a prayer of thanks and the second is the request. And what does Paul ask for? Paul asks for, oh, nothing big, just complete knowledge, spiritual wisdom, understanding, continued production of fruit, strengthened by God's power, patience, and filled with joy. Nothing big, right? But Paul's view of a big God and a big spirit reveals that he believes that God can do it, even in this church. And so there's too much here for us to go into completely today. So this is a, this is a pitch for midweek. If you, if you want more, come to midweek. Um, but, but we're going to break down a few of them. And I want us to get a connection between the Old Testament and this letter here. In Exodus chapter 31, we see the story of God commanding Moses to, to bring able men to build the tabernacle to build this mobile temple where God's presence would dwell with them as they went out through the wilderness. And one of the men's name was Bezalel. And in the text in Exodus, it says this. This is from the Greek translation, which was the Bible that Paul used. And it says this. And I have filled him, Bezalel, with a divine spirit of wisdom and understanding and knowledge in every good work. Divine spirit of wisdom, understanding, knowledge in every good work. Look again at Colossians 1, 9 through 10. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Again, the scholars are, are not sure if Paul's making a direct quotation so much as an illusion. He's making a connection between the builder of the tabernacle and the connection to what God is doing in this new thing, the church. Now here's, here's such an important thing I want you to get what was once a one-man and one-time vocation became the eternal and forever identification of the people indwelled by God's Spirit. That, that this one time in human history, this man was called to be the builder of a tabernacle where God would dwell. 
But now we, the church, are the people who have God's presence in us and among us, that we are now able to be identified by the same thing that one man had for a moment. And this new thing that God has begun, it's, it's playing out in the middle of this, this young church, this young church with so many problems, and Paul's prayer is that they would live up into their calling. That we as well would live up into this calling that God's spirit that lives in us would make us not builders of a tabernacle for God to dwell in, but to be the temple where God makes himself at home. So, so that we, our calling is even greater than Bezalel's. More than just building an earthly tabernacle, we ourselves are where God dwells. And that Paul is asking, he's asking God to, to fill them uh, and make them capable of being the, the Sorry, he's qualifying them to be the people that God would be able to use to be the temple where he lives. And so the specifics of what Paul requested aren't just a cool connection. They also spoke to the problem in Colossae. Remember, again, the problem is that they've given into this mysticism. They've given into this idea that they need further knowledge beyond the good news. They need further knowledge beyond God and his spirit. This calling that they have to be where God's spirit dwells wasn't enough for them. And so Paul is praying that, that they would receive true spiritual wisdom rather than being led off into this myth, into this heresy, into this false teaching. God wants them to have true wisdom. God wants them to have true understanding, to know that, that you can't go beyond Jesus. There's nothing more than Jesus. Any church that goes beyond Jesus is teaching a false teaching because we never need to go beyond Jesus. Because his spirit continues to show us more and more in him. He continues to grow us further and further into his likeness. That, that we can never go beyond Jesus because Jesus is enough. He's all-sufficient and supreme. Paul is praying for them and us to be able to see false teaching as false teaching so that we can grow in knowing God truly and fully. And this connects to the next part of his prayer, which, which is asking God for his glorious power to keep them enduring with patience. That knowing that this is not going to be the last heresy they're going to face. This isn't going to be the last problem they're going to face. This young church is just beginning the journey, and they have all these problems they're already seeing. And so, so Paul is getting ahead of them and saying, God, please give them endurance. Give them patience to continue this fight, because I know it's not going to end here. And in the midst of the pressure from the outside to go back to what is familiar and the false teaching on the inside trying to keep them to, from going to what is new, they would need God's Spirit to empower them to persevere. And we need the same thing. But in both of these pressures, only God's Spirit can actually help us overcome them, their, their problems and our own. Only through God's Spirit can we actually persevere to the end. And the final thing Paul prays for them in this section is connected to, to Jesus' work. He's praying for joy for them in Jesus' work. Rather than thinking, oh yeah, the gospel, that's where I start. Yeah, that's the door to the, to the church. That's, that's where we enter into the church. No, no, Paul is praying that they would have joy overflowing in this good news of what Jesus has done. I don't know about you guys, but when I was, when I was first started following Jesus, I thought the gospel was just the beginning. And it is the beginning, right? The good news would be, without the gospel, there's no way I'm invited in. There's no way you're invited in without the gospel, right? But the gospel is not the door to the Christian home, so to speak. It's the home itself. 
is a place we make ourselves at home. We need to be constantly reminded of the good news of what Jesus has done. Because each day we're tempted to forget it. Each day we're tempted to not believe it. Each day we're faced with all of these, these lies and these heresies that try and push us away from Jesus. But Jesus reminds us in the good news that we are no longer in the kingdom of darkness. But we've been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. We've been transferred into a new kingdom which means we belong to a new king, and that should cause us joy. Joy that doesn't have to go after legalistic practices, that we don't have to keep putting on chains through bad habits that are familiar. But in all this prayer, we see that Paul is starting off his letter with some key corrections, but he, he ends this prayer with the, the reality of the gospel, that all this is possible because of what Jesus has done, that everything is possible because of what Jesus has done. And there's a moment, again, of thanking God for the new creation that has begun, but there's a request that God, would, that God would bring the new still to come. That they, rather than settling back into false beliefs and familiar habits of the religious world they existed in, that they would be people who exhibited the new creation towards those still living in the old. Because Paul knew something that they didn't really think about, probably. Is that whenever the church is wrestling with these heresies, we can't be the church to the world around us. That when we're misled, how can we show the world what Jesus is like? And so Paul was aware that they weren't just called to be a temple, but they were called to build the temple. And they needed the Spirit of God to be able to accomplish that. And the way that they could do that, and we can do as well, is remembering who Jesus is and what he's done. And next week, again, the passage we'll build on. I think all these, these chapters will kind of build on this concept of the gospel being the foundation, the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done is a foundation that we build all the rest of it from. But again, only a right picture of Jesus is all-sufficient and supreme. Only then can we live out the calling to be the people of the new creation in the midst of the old. Only a correct view of Jesus will help us resist the pull towards dead religion or empty mysticism. Only a right view of Jesus will compel us beyond what is familiar to what is new and true. This new creation breaking out in the middle of the old is good news because we're incapable in and of ourselves to be who we're made to be without God's Spirit dwelling in us through the gospel. In school, there's, there's advanced classes for kids who are, like, really good learners. So you've got the athletic kids, not me. The, the musically talented, artistically talented kids, not me. Uh, and so I just read, and so that was an advantage. Um, I was in those advanced classes. This is not a brag. Let me get there. Um, but it made me extremely lazy, extremely lazy. I didn't really try because I didn't have to, right? I could just go to class, know the information, never study, and get an A on the test. And again, not bragging, because it made me extremely lazy, which means anything I wasn't immediately good at, I didn't try. Anything I wasn't immediately, so there's a lot of things in life you can't be immediately good at. Driving, right? Some people don't know that, but it takes time to get better at it. And so when I started following Jesus, I falsely brought this familiar lie into my walk with Jesus. I thought, okay, Jesus saved me. Jesus saved me for my sins. I'm forgiven, and I have this new life. Cool. So that's done. No, it's not. Um, the reality is that all those sins, all that struggle would come up even more now. Even more, I had to be aware of that laziness creeping in, that laziness or that familiarity going to what's simple and easy. 
And, and that's a problem in Colossae, really. That's a problem in each of us, if we're honest, is that we will all be tempted to go back to what is easy rather than what is true and new. Sometimes God does immediately change your habits, but often, most of us, the process of leaving what is familiar for what is new is hard. And we can try and push ourselves to be better. We can try and compel ourselves to, to stop sinning by, by adding all these rules to our Christian life, but nothing can make up for the Spirit's work over time. In each area, we can feel the impulse towards familiar rather than what's true and new because it comes naturally. But Jesus is calling us beyond our familiar natural ways, things that keep us stuck in this old way of living into the new creation reality that goes from the dead. So as we spend the next few months breaking down the book of Colossians, there's just a couple steps I want to give you to help us apply this to our lives. One of the pastors I listen to, I listen to sermons before I preach, just to make sure I'm in the right direction, uh, is John Tyson. He, he's a great teacher, so if you ever want more preaching to listen to outside of us, uh, John Tyson from Church of the City, New York. One of the applications he gave his people, and I think is great, is to read the book and reread the book of Colossians every week for the whole time we're preaching through it. So I, I challenge you today. It's four, four chapters, maybe 15, 20 minutes, to read through the whole book to read through it every single week. Every single week to read through the book of Colossians to let the, the scripture get into your heart and into your mind. Because I think God does something when we continually return to the same truth, when we become aware of that truth that we need to hear again and again. And so my challenge for you is for the next couple months, keep reading that book. And if, if you want to read more, that's fine. But, but keep reading that book each week. It's four chapters. 15 to 20 minutes in total. Keep going back. And I think God will do something in our church if we, if we together go into this book looking for what God wants to teach us. The second step is this, is I want us to begin to praise God for all the new creation he's already done in us, in our families, and in this church. If you don't already think like that, my challenge for you is to, is to do that. So if you need to write a reminder in your phone, set the reminder if you need to write it at the top of your, of your whiteboard or wh wherever you're going to remember, to begin to ask God, where's the new already breaking into the old? Where's the new creation already showing up in the midst of this old one? And how can I begin to praise God for, for it? You see, when we make it a priority to reflect and praise God for the ways that we've already seen, we'll become even more aware of what he's doing. In fact, again, it's, it's our perspective and not God's power that is often lacking in our ability to praise him. Because if you're a believer, the new has already begun. You just may not be aware of it yet. And the final step is this, is I want you to, to begin, if you haven't again, to begin asking God, where does he need to grow me? Where does he need to grow us as a church, our families, in, in the reality of the new that still is to come? Well, where, where can we grow in spiritual wisdom and strengthen us in power and joy in what Jesus has done? Where can we continue to grow and begin to make that a daily or at least weekly practice in your prayers? Praying for others and praying for yourself in this way will continue again to see, I think, the fruit of it. I was just talking to someone today about the power of prayer that, that a couple weeks ago that, that someone was praying for Norm and the very next day he had good news. That's the power of prayer. It's not the person praying, but the Spirit moving through the prayer. And so praying for our church will have great, great side effects, so to speak. It's easy to be a critic. It's much harder to be an advocate. It's much harder to be an advocate. 
But think of your own self. Are there any problems from the Colossian church affecting you? Are you tempted towards legalism? Towards judging others by the rules that you've set up? To judge yourself by the rules you've set up? Are you feeling the pull towards spirituality without Jesus? A life of wanting what Jesus offers without Jesus on the throne? Are there people in your life pulled in these directions? Have you made it a, a personal priority to pray for yourself and others? To be an advocate for them? Is this a regular part of your life and rhythm? Paul sets the example, guys. This is what we should be doing. This is the pastor's heart, that we should be praying for, 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 God, for God to move in these areas in people's lives because there's still so much new that can be, be possible in this world if we would just pursue it in prayer. And ultimately, we, 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 start, we start and end all this on our identity, which is that we have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his dear son, who has purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. That that reality, that identity, that new thing that God has begun, that's more true about you than anything else if you're a follower of Jesus. That's more true about you than, than the way you see yourself, than, than, the, than the way, the things you think about yourself. That if you are a follower of Jesus, what Jesus says about you is more true than anything else. And that because of that identity, we should live into it. We should become more and more what God is calling us to be. We should pray more and more that we would become what God has called us to be. Because the reality is the new thing that God has begun is all that you'd ever hoped for and wish for, but you just didn't know it yet. So let's not sink back into our familiar practices. Let's not settle into a life that is familiar but misses out on the new that God is doing. Because the new creation has already begun the day that Jesus was risen from the grave. And we are invited into that life. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the new creation life that you've given us, God. Lord, we don't, we haven't earned it. We couldn't deserve it. But still, God, in your great love for us and for this world, you came. You came and you died and you rose again, giving us new life. And the new creation life has already begun. Lord, we see it in miracles. We see it in the everyday of life. We see it in changed hearts and changed lives. God, we see it all over, all over the world around us if we just have your perspective. God, I pray right now for our church. Lord, that you would give us the perspective to see what you're already doing. That, to be able to praise you for all the ways you've already moved, all the ways you've already changed people, all the ways you've already grown us and, and pulled us closer and closer into your image. But Lord, I also want to pray for all the areas we're still not there. This is a great church, Lord. This is the best church I've ever been a part of, Lord. And yet there's still so much more you want to do. Because God, you are always calling us forward and ahead into the future of that new creation reality. And you want us to join you there. And it can start today. So Lord, I pray for wisdom for all these people. I pray for wisdom that would lead us into greater truth and, and greater knowledge of you and not just the things that come easy. But Lord, most of all, I pray that they would remember that their identity is in Christ. 
that this week all the things they're going to face, whether it's hard times at work, hard times in their fa family, all, all kinds of things that we face every single week, God. I just pray that, that the identity that you have given them through your son, the identity that, that Jesus has, di has died for them, that he's risen from the grave, that they're now forever secure in you by your spirit. God, that that identity would lead them to greater praise and praise of your name, but also that they would, they would find security in that. Rather than finding security in the old, that they would find security in your love. Lord, I thank you that you're so much better than anything we could ever ask for or imagine, and you have so much more in store for us than we could ever want. And it's so good. So we thank you for all you do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.